Hi, welcome to the Forge Church Catch-Up Podcast. My name is Becky and you have joined us for our series, Seven Stories, where we're looking at some of the standout stories that Jesus told over 2,000 years ago. Although these stories were told long ago, they are uncannily relevant and applicable to our lives today. So get yourself comfortable and let's begin. So, good morning. Um, So for those of you that don't know me, my name is Dave. Um, I'm a youth worker for a charity in Stowmarket called The Mix. I want to start in a bit of an unusual way today. I want to start by talking about my least favorite words. Um, See, I love communicating. I love crafting language to communicate what I really want to say, what I'm feeling, and hopefully what others are thinking and feeling in the most powerful way. And so I love words. But there are also some words that I hate, that suck. Words like this word. I mean, can you imagine having a lisp, and that's the word that people use to define what it is that you've got? Or this word, I only found out yesterday evening that all the way through my prep, I'd been spelling this wrong. Can you imagine if you've got dyslexia having to write that on a form? You know, I asked Helen, who's the location leader here, I asked her what her least favorite word was, and she said it's this. She said, because it's not even a word. She said, gigantic is a word, and enormous is a word. Ginormous isn't even a word, and yet we've made it a word. And for those of you thinking it is a word, this blew my mind too. It is a word. It's in the dictionary as a slang term, but as Helen would say, as a teacher, it's not a word. Now, before I show you what my least favorite word is, I want to just start by saying I am a Christian, because you might be about to doubt that. This is my least favorite word. I'm not saying this for effect. I mean this. To the bottom of my soul with a fiery passion, I hate this word. See, I I love Jesus. Jesus made a home for my daughter in heaven when she died. Jesus rescued me from my old life. He's restored my heart. He continues to restore my heart. Jesus will never let me be the kind of man that I am. He will always make me better. Jesus challenges me to be a better man. Jesus loves me and protects me and cares for me in a way that he has never let me down, ever. Even when I feel like he does, he has never let me down. He protects me and supports me and cares for me and my family. But I hate this word. I hate what it means to so many people outside of the church. You know, when you say this word, people think, oh, okay, so you don't believe in science. Oh, okay, so you're intolerant. Oh, okay, so you're judgmental. Oh, so you don't like alcohol, sex, or fun in general. And this is what people outside of the church often think of us. And is that what this word is supposed to mean? A mini Christ, a Christ follower? What does this word mean to us, those inside the church? Because this word is supposed to mean that you follow the Son of God. But what it often means is, yeah, I try and be a really good person to earn my place in heaven. I have the joy, I've had the joy over the last three months of spending time with a young person that... (laughs) I just think it's amazing. She has a sense of humor that I never fail to laugh. I love meeting with her. She's so strong, so determined. And on the second time we met up, I said to her, I asked her, what do you think God thinks of you? What's your relationship with God like? And she said, well, I don't think I'm acceptable to him. Actually, I guess I don't think he would accept me. I said, why? And she said, well, most of my friends aren't Christians and I like going to parties. This is one of the saddest things I've ever heard come out of the mouths of someone talking about how Jesus feels about them, that she's not acceptable to him because she has non-Christian friends and likes going to parties. The God of heaven who went to a wedding and when everybody else was pretty much wasted already, he brought the best wine. 
I'm not being flippant with that, but that's what happened. The God of heaven who tore himself apart and came to live with us, who called a zealot to come and follow him. That's the equivalent of a modern-day suicide bomber, became one of his best friends. A tax collector, come follow me. That's the equivalent of a Jew working for the Nazis during the Holocaust. Come and follow me and be my friend. When I used to work for a church, um, one of the best times of my life were the Friday nights where we would have drop-ins but actually after drop-ins, because at nine o'clock we would shut the drop-in and most young people would go home, but 10, 15, 20 young people would hang around and they would open the cans of beer and they would sit there and we would talk. We would talk about their lives, the stresses, the failures, the fears, the highs, the excitement, and they would ask questions about Jesus. It was some of the most amazing, not just as a youth worker, some of the most fun times of my life in general, until I was told to stop, because apparently that concrete we were sitting on was consecrated ground. Where do we get this stuff from that we would reject young people because a piece of... I'm consecrated ground. If you're a Christian here, you're consecrated ground. That's a piece of concrete. A friend of mine, a few years ago, when someone he knew had killed himself, a friend of mine said to me, it's tragic. And I said, yeah, I know. How it must be to be at the lowest ebb of your life, so devoid of hope and joy that you would end your own life. I, I... I don't know how you get there. And he said, no, 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 what I mean is, it's tragic that he's in hell now. What? Where do we get this stuff? Because it sure as hell isn't in the Bible. Can you imagine a great God of love that his children, his child, who gets so low, so devoid of hope and joy that he ends his own life, and then on the other side of death, God rejects him? Where do we make this stuff up from? How do we get here? Half the time, I don't think we even know what God wants for us or from us. People who are already in pain are made to feel in more pain by us. People who are feeling judged are already made to feel more judged by us. And we do it to ourselves. We do it to our own hearts too. Someone said to me just yesterday, I don't feel like God would talk to me because he doesn't, does he? How did we get to this place where we can believe that the God of heaven who came to heaven to restore a relationship with us, who gave us the Holy Spirit, how can we get to the place where we think he doesn't speak? And if you don't agree that this is what it's like for people outside of the church, you're not spending enough time with enough people far enough away from God. Because this free gift of a two-way, living, breathing, daily relationship with God has been taken by Christians and clad with conditions and traditions and costs that he never meant to be there. And it's not a surprise. You think, how did we get here? How did we get to this word? It's because there's a battle going on every day for the human heart. See, Jesus fought this battle every day. He didn't fight the battle of disease every day. Jesus had that nailed. Just touch his cloak and it's gone. Jesus didn't fight the battle with death every day. He knew that was coming and he knew he was going to beat it once and for all. Jesus didn't even fight with the devil every day because the devil fled from him. The battle Jesus fought every day was with the human heart, for the human heart. Yes, I know Jesus fought for us to be able to go to heaven, but what does that even mean? It's like we think that that this earth is, have you ever said this? Have you ever heard this? This earth is a training ground for what comes next. This earth is a training ground. No, this earth was never supposed to be a training ground. This earth was supposed to be heaven. Eternity with God in Eden, all of the beauty and none of the brokenness. And how do we get here? See, God's story doesn't start with sin and it doesn't end with salvation. God's story starts with him already existing in perfect love and out of perfect love creating. And he made us. We walked and talked with him. 
and we were deceived. We were deceived into thinking we couldn't trust him and he was withholding from us. Eve got jealous. Adam got weak. Eve denied her unique place in God's creation and Adam denied his strength. Thousands of years followed of us misusing, abusing and mismanaging God's creation, his will, his purposes and thousands of years of God launching a rescue mission to save us. Creation restored, a home in eternity but not a heaven in the clouds, creation restored on earth. How did we get from that to an amazing young woman feeling like she is not acceptable to God because her friends aren't Christians and she goes to parties? It's because of your worldview. You see, the battle going on for your human heart, the battle going on for our heart starts with our worldview. See, your worldview is like a climbing frame that you sit on every day. Over the course of your life, everything you see and hear and feel and experience builds this climbing frame and you look out from this place. It's like a lens that you look through. Everything that you see is based on the lens that you look through and that's created over the course of your life. And your worldview determines the state of your heart. And your heart determines everything else. Your, your, your worldview determines the state of your heart, and the state of your heart determines everything else. It's why Jesus' battle was with the human heart for the human heart. And it's why he told stories. Because, you see, you will never be able to out-argue someone's worldview, ever. Because someone's worldview is built on evidence. It might be misinterpreted evidence, it might be false evidence, but it's evidence nonetheless. It's things that they have seen, things that they have experienced over the course of their life. You will never be able to out-argue their worldview. So Jesus came with stories. Because stories disarm our worldview. Stories get behind our defenses. And they can convey a richness and a truth and a depth that a rule and a law will never be able to. And this is where we join Jesus' story today. Jesus says this, And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, for the old skins would burst from the pressure, spilling the wine and ruining the skins. No, new wine is scored in new wineskins so that both will be preserved. Now, this is, the truth is, this isn't really a story in and of itself. This is more highlighting a bigger story. This is an exclamation point on another story. Now, some of you will know what this means, but for the rest of us, we need to go back to the beginning of Matthew's account of Jesus' life, because this comes in Matthew chapter 9. For those of you that are new to faith and church, we divide up the stories and the books of the Bible into chapters and verses so that it's easier to find things. And this one comes in Matthew chapter 9. Now, Matthew was a Jew, and Matthew was writing for a Jewish audience, and Matthew was a tax collector. He was despised because he would have been like a Jew working for the Nazis during the Holocaust. He worked for the Romans, and he was despised because he benefited from the Jews' oppression and from their oppressors. And Jesus said, come follow me. Be my disciple. And so he did. And he wrote an account of Jesus' life. And he starts with Jesus' family tree. He says, such and such, his father to such and such, his father to such and such. If you've ever read it, you'll know why I'm saying such and such. And he gets all the way down to Jesus. And what he's doing is he's saying to the, the people reading, guys, you know, you know the stuff we learn in Sunday school? This is him. This is who it's about. You know that rescue mission that God's been on? This is him. This is it. This is the rescue mission. He talks about Jesus' birth and his escape into Egypt. Guys, you know those prophecies they told us in Sunday school? They've come real in him. 
He talks about Jesus is coming back and being baptized in the Jordan River by John and the heavens opening and God speaking from heaven saying, this is my dearly loved son with whom I am well pleased. This is him, guys. This is God come to earth. He talks about Jesus being taken into the wilderness and tempted by the devil. The devil trying to trick him the way he tricked us. But the difference is Jesus doesn't just know a story. Jesus wrote the story so he couldn't trick him. And then Matthew records Jesus calling his disciples and boom, he starts his ministry. He starts repainting what faith looks like, what God looks like. He says things like, you know, you guys have heard it said that when God, when suffering happens, it's because God's punishing you. No, when suffering happens, when God's in it with you, he didn't do it to you. And he starts saying things like this. You have heard it said, but I say, you guys, this worldview that you stand on, all of this stuff that you believe, all of the stuff that determines your heart, you have heard it said, but I say, lust, divorce, treating your enemies. You have heard it said, but I say again and again and again, repainting this faith and rebuilding this foundation. And then he moves on and he says stuff like this. When you do this, don't be like the hypocrites do who do this. When you have this foundation, you will behave differently. But you won't behave differently to earn God. You will behave differently because you know you are loved by God. You won't behave differently to please him. You will behave differently because you know you are already pleasing him just by being alive. When your foundation is different, your heart will beat in a different way. And then he turns to the Pharisees and he says this, why do you have such evil thoughts in your heart? Your worldview is wrong. Your foundation is wrong. It pollutes your hearts and you, with, you live, behave with such evil. You cripple people, condemn people, and it's because the state of your heart. And then this happens. This is where we join the story. John the Baptist's disciples come to Jesus and they ask him this. One day, the disciples of John the Baptist came to Jesus and asked him, why don't your disciples fast like we or the Pharisees do? Okay, straight off, you never want to compare yourself to a Pharisee. It's never going to start well. It's never going to end well. And, and, I, and when I read this, I think, these are John's disciples. John, who saw heaven open and God say to his son, you are my dearly loved son, they would have been with him. You know, disciples in Jesus' day used to follow their rabbi into the toilet to see if there was something holy that they did. These guys would have been there when it happened, and they're asking him about fasting. See, Jesus had just taught them about fasting just a little while before this. He said, when you fast, go into your room. Don't be like the Pharisees. Go into your room. Wash your face. Wash your hair so that no one knows you're fasting. Close the door because fasting is about you and your father in heaven. It's about your relationship with him, your proximity to him. You don't do it to earn proximity. You do it to have proximity. You don't do it to earn your right to be close. You do it to be close. And they say, well, why don't your disciples do it? And he replies, and he says this, do wedding guests mourn while they're celebrating with the groom? Why would they do it? I'm here with them. Your worldview is so rigid and so wrong, you don't understand that you can't even see the God of heaven when he is standing in front of you. Why would they fast? I am here with them now. He goes on and he says this. Someday the groom will be taken away from them and then they will fast. When I'm not here, they will do it because they will want proximity with me. But why would they do it now? It would just be empty religion. 
And then he answers, answers a question they're not even asking. He throws out a challenge that they don't even want. And he says this. Besides, who would patch old clothing with new cloth? For the new patch would shrink and rip away from the old cloth, leaving an even bigger tear than before. Why don't you get that I'm doing something new? This stuff that you believe, this worldview that you've created, it can't contain me. You don't add me into your worldview already. You don't look through your narrative and just add me into it because I'll destroy it. You'll ruin me and you'll ruin that. He goes on and he says, and no one puts new wine into old wineskins for the old wineskins would burst from the pressure. They would spill the wine and ruin the skins. New wine is stored in new wineskins so that both are preserved. See, in Jesus' day, they would stitch together a goat skin so that it could contain the water. But they weren't putting wine in the wineskins. They were putting grape juice in the wineskins, and it would ferment in the wineskins. So it would stretch the wineskins. The gas, as it was being released, would stretch it. No one would put new wine into old wineskins. There is no possible good outcome from new wine into old wineskins. You will tear the wineskins, and you will lose all of the wine. Everybody listening would have gone, well, you'd be stupid. There is no good explanation for why you would do this. And Jesus is saying, and yet you're doing it with me. Everything that you've seen and heard, you think I'm just another rabbi. See, all the way through this, Jesus has been fighting with the religious teachers. He's been ridiculed by his family and his friends. He's been getting death threats. Why? The same reason you and I would have. Because he doesn't fit into our expectations of or understanding of God. See, even the law that God gave, even the law that Jesus gave, the Ten Commandments, it was never supposed to be the full picture. It was always a plaster and a signpost. It was to help them and keep them safe until God's rescue mission came to fruition. And what they did was they took that and they made it worse. They twisted it and they crippled it and they crushed it because of their worldview. And instead of a worldview that looked out from a mountaintop, instead of a worldview that was full of love and joy and grace and patience and goodness, it was a worldview that looked out from a prison cell. It was a worldview that crippled people. It was a worldview that created a world in which an amazing young woman can think she's not acceptable to God because she likes going to parties and her friends aren't Christians. Do we do the same thing? Have we got to the same point? Because if we don't realize that that word Christian is devastating for people outside of the church, I start to wonder if we have. If we have tried to add Jesus into our worldview, one of my big struggles is two little boys. They're growing up in a church family. I didn't grow up in a church home. And I can't help but think there's risks to that, to their worldview. Good in some senses, but will they just add Jesus into what they've been told or will they discover him and what he says for themselves you cannot look at Jesus through your pain through your suffering through your fears I have dreaded this morning I said to the guys I've I felt so bad for the last couple of days I thought this is going to be rubbish I can't do it I shouldn't do it and last night I remembered a time when I felt exactly the same and I stood up on stage and God came through for me. I have to look at how I feel through the lens of him, not look at him through the lens of how I feel. Your pain, your suffering, your fears, your experiences, you cannot look at Jesus through them. You have to look at them through Jesus or it will break your relationship with God. It will break your faith. You will lose your faith and you will pour, you will waste Christ, the majesty and beauty of Christ, you will waste it on the floor. Does your worldview point to beauty and majesty or does your worldview say why you're not acceptable for beauty and majesty? 
when I started being mentored by Steve Fenning, he gave me an unbelievable gift. He did not teach me what the Bible said. He taught me how to read it for myself. He gave me a safe space to ask questions. He gave me a space, safe space to challenge. He gave me a safe space to discuss answers again and again and again and again. And a couple of years after I became a Christian, I, said to, I was with Steve and Sarah, and I said, when does it stop being about grace and start being about rules? When does it stop being about this free gift and start being about the way that you behave? And he said, it doesn't. I said, it does, because that's what's happened. That's how I feel. That's what I'm seeing, is that that free gift is becoming conditional. This verse, this verse is how you stop amazing young women from feeling like they're not acceptable to God. This verse is how we stop or how we become a church that buys the beer at the barbecue. I'm not trying to be flippant with alcohol. I'm trying to say that's what he did. And do we look at that through his lens or ours? This verse here gives you permission to challenge. This verse gives you permission to question your worldview, permission to question the heart of God. Because if he's God, he's big enough to handle it. He's big enough to deal with it. In fact, this doesn't just give us permission. This challenges us to do it. It challenges us to be a red-letter Christian. See, there's Shane Claiborne, one of my favorite authors, and he wrote this book. And I tried so hard to find this book to make sure the story was accurate because I can't remember whether the story is him or his friend. But either way, him, Shane Claiborne or his friend went to a radio station to have an interview. And the radio interviewer said to him, see, you're a red-letter Christian, right? And he said, what do you mean? He said, you know... The words of Jesus in Bibles, they're written in red. Like, you believe those. You're one of those Christians. To which he said, yeah, I suppose I am. This is a challenge for us to be a red-letter Christian. See, I do not believe in Christianity. I believe in Jesus. I don't believe in Moses or Daniel or Paul. I believe that they're real. I believe that God spoke to them, and I believe that there are things about their lives and what they've said that, that we can learn from and that help us. But they didn't create a home for my daughter in heaven. Jesus did. They don't restore my soul. They don't protect me and keep me safe. Jesus does. They didn't write the red letters. Jesus did. So how do we do it? Unfortunately, the answer is, it's between you and Jesus. Don't, don't, don't ever. If you know me well enough, you would never consider it. Don't ever follow me. Don't ever follow anyone who stands up on this stage. Don't follow your favorite podcast. Don't follow your favorite speakers. Don't follow your favorite authors. All those people should do is point you to Jesus because it's him that you should follow. And every single person, when they look at their worldview, when they look at their life through him, they will discover a richness and beauty that they've never had before. I was speaking to a young person a while ago, and <clears throat> she's an incredible artist. And she was saying that she just doesn't see that God's put anything in her. <laughs> I said to her, the same thing in Jesus that put the stars in the sky. The same thing in God that created 8,000 types of beetle. That's the same thing in you that creates these pieces of art. She has to look at herself through the lens of Jesus, not the other way around. So I'm afraid you have to read your Bible. But you don't read your Bible so that you can please God. You read your Bible and you learn that you already please God. But here's the biggest challenge. If you want to do this well... Put down your wineskin. When you read the Bible, when you have a conversation, when you see a tweet on social media and it sticks in your throat, 
you think it's too much grace, too much beauty. You think it's too easy. Or you think, no, 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 that's not, that's not okay for me. That's valid for the other people, but I'm not worthy of that. Whatever sticks in your throat, whatever you think or feel, put down your wineskin. You've been given permission to go, okay, I'm not going to look at this through my worldview. I'm going to try and look at this through his lens, what he says, what he says about these people. You know, I have been great throughout my Christian life at digging a foxhole and jumping in it and saying, right, here's a line and I'm going to tell you the truth. And then God goes, no, you're wrong. You misunderstand me and you misunderstand what I want for these people. Put down your wineskin. You've been given permission to do it. I want to finish with a bit of encouragement for you. See, a couple of chapters after this, John's disciples came back to him. And they said this to Jesus. Oh, actually, I didn't put it up. They asked Jesus, are you the Messiah? John's in prison now. John sent them to say, are you the Messiah? Okay, John the Baptist saw the heavens open, heard the voice of God say, this is my love son. John the Baptist had read the Old Testament. He knew the prophecies that were fulfilled. John the Baptist was there every Passover with the family when his family went, hey, John, you know, Uncle Joseph, he didn't get Auntie Mary pregnant. He was God. He knows. He knows that he's the Messiah. So why is he asking? Because Jesus didn't look like the Messiah. Because every Jew thought that the the Son of God was going to come with a sword and overthrow the Romans by force. And Jesus wasn't doing that. And so he said this to John's disciples. Go back to John and tell him what you've heard and seen. I can imagine him rolling his eyes, but I think he's too gentle for that. Go back to John and tell him what you've heard and seen. The blind see John. The lame walk. Those with leprosy are cured. The deaf hear. The dead are raised to life, John. And the good news is being preached to the poor. And then he says this. God blesses those who do not fall away because of me. John, I get that your worldview has given you this picture of who God is. It's given you this picture of what I'm going to look like. But don't let your wineskin burst, John. Don't fall away because of me. Just because it doesn't fit in with your idea of what I'm going to be like or look like, don't fall away because of me. Jesus then talks to his disciples and he then says this, come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear and the burden I give you is light. Is this the Jesus that you know? Is this the Jesus that you talk about? See, this word here, yoke, for those of you that don't know this word, this word here is zugos. And it means law or obligation. Not good connotations when you're talking about God. But if you put that word in, back into those verses, it says law. But you see, rabbis in those days, that's what they would call their teaching, their worldview, their yoke. It was their worldview. And so Jesus is saying, come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my worldview upon you. Take my teaching upon you, my obligation. Let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my law is easy. My burden is easy. My worldview, my teaching is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. Be a red letter Christian. Let's change what it means for people outside of church and let's change what it means for ourselves. 
And if you want to know if you're doing it right, then ask yourself, is it from the red letters? Ask yourself, is it easy to bear? Is the burden light? And if it's not, run away. Run from it as fast as you can because it isn't of God. It isn't for God. Run from it because there is a battle going on for your heart and everybody else's. Thank you so much for listening. We want to keep the conversation going, so make sure you follow us on our social media accounts at Forge Church. If you want to see or hear more about The Forge, check us out online at forgechurch.com where there's an opportunity to find out more, a chance to give and to browse previous series. See you next time.